until I read this. Here's the headline. 2,000 people applied to do nothing in South Korea. So on a Sunday afternoon, June 2016, people gathered at a park in Seoul to do absolutely nothing. Contestants can be disqualified for laughing, for using any technology, or even for falling asleep. The only thing you're allowed to do is to stare off into, in, in, like into space for 30 minutes or 90 minutes and, and, and do that as well as you can. Here's a quote from someone who participated in the event. He said this, I was suffering from burnout syndrome and would feel extremely anxious if I was sitting around doing nothing, not being productive in one way or another. I thought to myself, we would all feel better about doing nothing if we did nothing together as a group. Did you hear that? Like, did you catch that? They feel exhausted and ashamed, and they're bugging out. But if they knew that others were in it with them, they can feel better about it, like if it was done in community. Like, I think that's hilarious. Like, but I, think, I also think that you and I can get that, though. Right? I, I'll tell you what, a, a ton of people understand this very thing. Because this event was spreading. It went to Beijing, right? And Beijing's not, not now starting to have one. And it's going to be in New York City. And if it's in New York City, it'll be in our city uh, at some point, I'm sure. A space out competition is not just for overworked people out there. Perhaps you and I know something about this, too. Perhaps you're exhausted. Are you exhausted at work? on the job, from projects and deadlines? Are you exhausted from unexpected health concerns that are plaguing you right now and you're de having to deal with? Are you exhausted from marriage and kids and family situations, perhaps being in a tougher season right now? Are you exhausted from a long semester if you're a student? Are you exhausted from managing your personal finances and, and budgets and thinking, how am I gonna make it, make it all work? Are you exhausted from trying to maintain the perfect image of yourself and of course, are you exhausted from your own sin and brokenness? From the feelings of inadequacy, from the bitterness, from the envy and the greed and all these things that we deal with. Maybe we know a thing or two about being exhausted. Where do we go? To whom do we go? We go once again to the one who has the words of eternal life. We go to Jesus who has a word for us. And we start at the very beginning, at Jesus' baptism. You know, the, the people in John the Baptist's day, they were exhausted too. And so they went out and they followed John the Baptist out into the wilderness looking for something. So Matthew's gospel picks this up in chapter 3. Okay? Everything kind of launches from this event. I mean, Matthew talks a little bit about the events surrounding Jesus' birth and infancy. But he fast-forwards 30 years, and he picks it up with John the Baptist. Now, we know John the Baptist is a prophet. He's got all the telltale signs. Uh, he wears essential clothing. He eats wild food. He moves into an undeveloped part of town, and he quotes things from a bygone generation. Uh, if you read the earlier parts of chapter 3, you'll catch this. He's either a hipster or he's a prophet. That's, that's like the deal there, right? Like, he's got the telltale signs. He's a prophet. And here's the thing, uh, there hadn't been a prophet in 400 years. But that anticipated time of human history had arrived. The silence was broken. 
John the Baptist brings the message that the fullness of time had, had, had arrived and was upon them. It's time to prepare. Well, where has God always prepared his people? He's prepared them in the wilderness. It was the place where an exhausted people who had just come out of bondage in Egypt, right, out of slavery, they would find a God who would care for them and speak tenderly to them and lead them into rest. The time that God would once again bring them out, uh, would bring them out into the wilderness had arrived. God's people followed the prophet into the wilderness and then out to the Jordan to be baptized. They were ritually cleansing themselves, a sign that they needed to live life anew under God's rule and be washed in the water. Like their forefathers were baptized, crossing the Red Sea and became a new people. They too needed to turn from their fierce self-rule and self-reliance, from the exhaustion of their sin. And so there's this like heightened sense of anticipation in the air. The countdown had started. John the Baptist baptized them. They came out of the water. And then what? Nothing happened. <laughs> Nothing happened. A whole population of people had gone out, heard the message of John the Baptist, gotten into the water, came out with soaking wet clothes, and they were standing on the banks of the river. And now what? And then, and then this Jesus that Matthew had talked about being born, he came and he joined the people. And then something happened that day. Jesus gets into the water to get baptized. I think this passage is begging us to ask a couple questions. Why did Jesus get baptized? And why would that matter for me? So today, I, th I just want to look at two things that help us answer these questions, two things I think our exhausted hearts are needing and looking for. Uh, the first is Jesus speaks about something, and then secondly, something is spoken over Jesus. So Jesus speaks about something, and then something's spoken over him. Let's start with Jesus speaks about something. Uh, Jesus is coming out of obscurity here, okay? So, so who is he really, okay? This is what Matthew is beginning to uncover for us. For me, it's kind of like that painting by Rene Magritte. Uh, the one with this, he's, he's like a man in a suit, right? And he's got a bowler hat on, but his face is being obstructed by an apple. Do you know, do you know the painting I'm talking about? It's interestingly titled, The Son of Man. Okay? That was Jesus' self-designated title, right? The Son of Man. Uh, Rene Magritte titled this painting, Son of Man. For, I, I'm not sure exactly why. But we see the apple, right? But what we really want, what we really want to know is the face behind that apple, right? It's the same thing with the electronic music duo, Daft Punk, right? If you know Daft Punk, you know that they've never shown their faces. They wear these space helmets, right, when they perform. Or maybe it's, it's Teller from the, from the magic duo, Penn and Teller. Like the running gag is that Teller never talks, right? So you actually don't know what Teller sounds like. He, he just does the magic and lets it speak for itself. Does, does Teller have an accent? Is his voice deep? Is he a high talker? I don't know. God's people had been hearing about this coming Messiah. Well, the apple in front of Jesus is being slowly moved away. Teller is clearing his throat. The space helmets are coming off. And if you notice, these are the very first words that Jesus says in Matthew's book. 
I think Matthew is saying, you got to pay attention now. The prophetic voice, which had been silenced for 400 years, is unsilenced by John the Baptist. But now, once John the Baptist stops talking, the next thing to happen is God's going to show up and speak. And so he says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, this is a bit cryptic, isn't it? In fact, John the Baptist and Jesus had been in this mild debate in this passage, right? He's been in this debate over it all. Jesus comes out into the wilderness and insists that he gets baptized too. And John the Baptist says, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, John the Baptist doesn't think that Jesus needs to subject himself to this cleansing. That's this admission and confession of sin and impurity. In fact, he says Jesus should be baptizing him. It should be the other way around. Jesus responds to him with these words. It is to fulfill all righteousness. Because John the Baptist represents the old order. The last prophet of a closing age. A new age is dawning. A new age. But in order for Jesus to bring this new age, he needed to do what no one was able to do up until now. He had to live the life that no, no one in human history had ever been able to do. Jesus is saying, I want to do the will of God more than anything else, and I am pledging to do it. And here's where an exhausted people find words that are deeply loving and rich for our souls. You see, Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness, to be the truly human, fully flourishing person. But none of this would matter, right? None of this would matter if it didn't connect to us, would it? What good is it if Jesus lives the truly righteous life? It only matters if he identifies with those who haven't, if he identifies with us, with you and me. Well, that is what Jesus is doing. He is identifying completely with us. This passage is all about the deep love and commitment that he has for you and me. Here is the Son of God, the perfectly righteous one, getting into the same waters as the sinners, the shamed, the rejected, the ones with checkered past and current addictions, the ones who can't get it right even after the umpteenth time, the ones who've let others down, the ones who've even snickered at God and mocked him, the exhausted. And he says, let me be one of them. In fact, though he was no sinner, he will be the greatest sinner. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, he didn't, come to sh he didn't go out there to shame us and to look at us with scorn. He didn't go, tsk, tsk, look at what you've done with yourself. He doesn't go out there and see the and go out there and see the baptism, right? And he doesn't start pointing at people, right? Pointing at others, saying, "Hey, you, yeah, you. Don't you really need to be in there? You've already gone in. I think you need a second rinse." <laughs> he doesn't do that. He's not identifying sinners. No, he came to identify with sinners. That's what baptism is. It's a sign and seal, a symbol and promise of our union with God. God the Son is united with you. You are united to him. 
The baptism is where everything about Jesus launches because it's, it's the precursor to the cross. As he steps into the water, he's taking his first public step toward the cross. And in this passage, we can know he isn't ashamed to be identified with us. And let me tell you, folks, we need this. We need this. When people fail or have this stink or stain on them, our tendency is to avoid such people, right? It's kind of like what John Steinbeck wrote about one of his characters whose failure comes out into the open. And Steinbeck writes this in his novel. And now a wave of shame went over the whole procession. They all melted away. The beggars went back to their steps. The stragglers moved off. The neighbors departed so that the public shaming of the man, the public shame would not be in their eyes. That's what we do, right? We avoid failure. We avoid the stinking stain. The team that comes runner-up has the stink of being the loser, right? In the 1990s, the Buffalo Bills went to four straight Super Bowls, and instead of being regarded as one of the greatest teams of all time, they are regarded as the perennial losers. The public failure that someone has, and no one wants to be associated. Sponsors pull out. Associations are severed. PR is doing damage control. We know about this, don't we? Have you had the stink or stain of failure in your own life? In your own performance at work, in your own performance in your family, in your relationships. I think we have so many failures. We have academic failures, athletic failures, physical failures, social, professional failures, parental failures, moral and spiritual failures. The boss who's upset with you, the project that you've dropped the ball on, the cute guy or girl who ghosts you and doesn't return your text anymore the blow-up that you had on your own children, the ways that it can all come out sideways with, with habits and attitudes that you know are destructive. But Jesus doesn't look, look at us or treat us that way. He wants you to know that you belong to him. When he says, I'm here to fulfill all righteousness by being baptized as a penitent sinner, he's saying, I'm here for you by doing what you couldn't. But I'm also here to take on your failures. He can't go to the cross for you unless he humbles himself. And this actually frees us to be honest again. Because so much of life is about fake it till we make it. To look like we have it all together. Competent, productive, able to make things happen. It's all so exhausting. We do whatever it takes to not have our shame be seen in the eyes of well, Jesus goes into the waters with us, and he's in there with us. Secondly, something is spoken over Jesus. There's an interesting thing that happens when Jesus is baptized. He comes out and says, and it says that the heavens were opened, like the sky is torn, and God the Spirit descended. It actually, the, the word there has this connotation of fluttering. God the Spirit fluttered down and descended on God the Son like a dove and it rested on him. I think what Matthew's doing is he's, he's tapping our spiritual memory base, right? I, I think he's saying, you remember in Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and the earth, God, the Holy Spirit, hovered 
or fluttered over the new creation. There was another time also that a dove was prominently described in the Bible. And that was in Genesis 8, when the, when the flood had just subsided. And Noah is in the ark, and he sends out a dove to see if it had found dry land, right? Noah lets out this dove to see if this, if there was, if this dry land had, had, had made way for this new world, this new creation. Here, the Holy Spirit is likened to a dove, and it flutters down, and it rests on Jesus, who is bringing forth a new creation. It's a dawn of a new age. And here we are told to behold. We know all about behold, right? Like, we don't use this word a lot, but uh, the Bible uses it here twice. And we know all about it. We understand it. This is behind every viral trending event, right? Anytime you, you, you do this, right, with your phone, right, to somebody else, you've got to see this. We're saying behold, right? <laughs> like, March 1983 was a behold moment in world history. This is 35 years ago. This is when a young man first did this dance move while singing this song called Billie Jean. And people were like, what just happened? What was that? And people were trying to describe it. They were just saying, like, it's like he's sliding across the stage or the, the ground was moving beneath him, like a walkway. Or it's like he's moving forward, but, but, but also backward at the same time. I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on. And people were like, what is that? And that's when this young man named Michael Jackson gets interviewed afterward. And, he, and, and she asks him, what was that? And she, he says, that's the moonwalk. People were basically going everywhere and saying, behold, the moonwalk. And they're like practicing it in their living room, right? <laughs> Come on, you, you, I'm not the only one that did this, right? <clears throat> you might have not done it in your underwear like I did, but I was, I was doing it. <laughs> Matthew says, behold, something the world has never seen is before you. The heavens opened. The heavenly realm has broken in. It's in breaking upon the earthly. Matthew's describing what's happening. It's like describing the moonwalk. The heavens are torn. The long-awaited kingdom of God is advancing forward. It's led by a king. Jesus is the king who calls us to follow him into his kingdom, into this new creation. The dove is upon him. Step out of the ark. Have you ever wished this world was different? Well, Jesus does too. Jesus does too. He's come to build that world and remake all things. And then again, behold, right? It's again, behold, a voice emerges out of the sky. God the Father declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Something is spoken over Jesus. He is the child of God that we were all meant to be and intended to be, but we couldn't. But because Jesus has identified with us, if by faith we submit and we identify with him, God the Father says, you also are the beloved in whom he is well pleased. You are too. The word spoken over him is what he came to bring to us. This is something that we get to claim and own for ourselves. This isn't cheap sentimentality or empty platitudes. This isn't, hey, you're going to be great. You'll be fine. It's all for the best. Look. We all want to hear and we all want to know that we are beloved and we are well-pleasing. 
Is there any question that drives us each day? Is there anything that we obsess with more than, am I living rightly? Am I living well? You see, the parallel to this is Jesus' words. This is to fulfill all righteousness. This is, to, this is what it means to live rightly. We are beloved and well-pleasing. That's the answer to our obsession, to our questions. Am I beautiful enough? Am I smart enough, good enough? Am I cool enough and hip enough? Am I loved? Am I effective? We want to know the answers to these questions. There's a cynical take on this too, right? And it's, a bit, it's because this, it's such a harsh obsession that we have to come up with cynical ways to deal with it. I was shopping one time and I saw a t-shirt at the store and the t-shirt just across it said, try harder. And then right next to it on the table was a, was a, oh, was a cap. And the hat said, be better. These are the messages that we are whispering to ourselves because we are, we're unsure if we're living rightly. Keep trying harder. Do more. Be perfect. Make, right, make the right decisions. Be better. Walk around a college campus. Walk around WashU. Walk around town. Visit the shops and neighborhoods, the workout studio, the coffee shop, the galleries. These are the messages that we whisper to ourselves. We're looking for some authority that can actually tell us that we are living rightly and that we're going to be okay. We all have a, a vision, an orienting life principle of what our life should look like and be like. Who can offer that affirmation? Where can we go? And if you're anything like me, we look for affirmation in places that are way too flimsy. It doesn't carry the authority that we need. So we teeter between our successes and our failures. And we're always kind of vacillating back and forth. Yes, I'm well. No, I'm not. And sometimes, because we feel the sting of our failures, sometimes there comes a point where our failures seem to define us more than anything. Our only recourse seems to be try harder, be better. The only way we know how to cope with the question of living rightly is to smother our failures, smother it with more successes, and, we, and hope that we can move far away enough from our stinking stains. We put out space, space out competitions. We indulge in escapist distractions. We look for ever shinier achievements, lifestyles that, that, that we think are, are, are attractive and cool, pursuits that we think are worthy. We try to look like we have it all together. It's all so exhausting, isn't it? We recognize it so easily in others, but if we're honest, we see it in ourselves too. Jesus is offering another way. He himself knew what being exhausted was all about. He knew it in both life and in death. And he offers to you and me this. I get to redefine you. I get to rename you. Emerge with a new identity. You get to have beloved child in whom the heavenly father is well pleased, spoken over you. You are his beloved daughter. You are his beloved son. And you are well pleasing. Easter is just behind us and yet you and I have been, and you and I will continue to look for ways to know, to know that we are beloved, ones who are living lives that are, that are pleasing. Where will you get it from? Where will you get it from? Only hearing it from Jesus will fill you. You're being called to consider, were these words spoken over Jesus? 
that these words bring forth the dawn of a new age where Jesus has united himself to his people. Because if they were, then Jesus is enough. And if he is, then you are enough. So are you, because these words are spoken over you. I grew up near the, the beaches of Lake Michigan in Chicago on the North Shore. Sometimes I get up early and catch the sun rising over the horizon. Um, I'll tell you, the very best time is when the sun is hovering just above the waters, like way out in the distance on the horizon. It's just like, it's just like a small little glowing ball, right? You can like look directly at it. It's just this tiny little thing. But already, because of this little ball, you, you start to see the sun's presence like peeling the darkness of the night away. It's the very moment of dawn. Soon, the sun will rise completely overhead, and it will shine with the fullness of its light, and it's so bright. We live in that space of dawn right now, don't we? Right now. With Jesus, the light of a new age has come. The darkness of sin and our exhaustion is being pulled back. One day, the fullness of the light of God the Son will be upon us when Jesus comes back. It will be so bright. The darkness of sin will be completely gone. Until that day comes, we live in that space of dawn. We live in that space. Jesus has given us what we need. He's given us the Father's words, words for the dawn. It's, it's yours to claim. Praise be to him. Let's pray. God, we're thankful that, uh, that you sent Jesus and that he came not only to identify with sinners, um, but to go to the cross, to die for us and to be raised and to move out. Because of that, we know that we ourselves can be your well-pleasing son and daughter. I pray that any of us who are struggling to believe that, that you would give them faith to know that there is hope in these words, that there is life, that you, are, that you have brought upon us a new age, and we, we have these words for the dawn. Give thanks. In Jesus, amen. We get to uh, confess our faith together um, using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Crossroads, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Um, we've had a baptism today. We've had the word preached today. We get, we get, now we get to come to the Lord's table now. Um, 
This table is for exhausted souls. It's for those of us. It's not for those who are champions of the spiritual life, who are giants of faith. It's for those who need Jesus. It's for those who need these words that, that were spoken over Jesus and that, that are spoken over us. It's for exhausted souls. If that describes you, then this table is for you. Um, I want to I wanna pray, pray for the element, um, and we'll have the ushers come up soon. Let me pray. God, our exhausted souls, our exhausted hearts, uh, need you to, um, to fill us and, and to remind us that you are with us. I pray that we would know the union that we have with you. That as we physically take in this bread, as we physically take in this wine, it's the only way that our, our, our stubborn, obstinate hearts would know that you are really with us. I pray that you would set aside these elements now for the holy purpose of, uh, of building up our faith, uh, of helping us to live in the obedience to you. Would you do that for us? In Jesus, amen. If uh, this table is for the exhausted, but who, who, who know that they need Christ. If, if this does not describe you, if, uh, if you have not placed your faith in Christ as the one who can bring rest to exhausted souls, uh, just let the elements pass by. There's no shame in that. We would not want you to do anything that's not act, actually reflective of where you're at uh, with God. But if, if, if that does describe you, uh, these are meant for you. On the night that Jesus was on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he gave him thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant, my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Uh, for as often as you uh, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take and receive what he's graciously given to you.
Body of Christ, take and eat by faith. Cup of the new covenant, taste and drink. We've been fed by Christ. Let's uh, let's stand and sing this Easter doxology.